welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and good evening everyone I Ritika Gupta assistant director at Infra Impact and Policy Research Institute Tabha Vivam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan Nayi Delhi extend my heartiest welcome to you all to this hashtag webolis talk today we are here for a special talk on the role of emerging technology in social and political maneuvering challenges and solution this talk is part of the series the state of education hashtag education dialogue which is organized by Center for ICT for Development Atimpri. The speaker for today is Dr. Samuel Bully. I would now like to welcome our moderator for today, Dr. Simi Mehta, who is CEO and Editorial Director at Atimpri, to introduce our program and the speaker further. Thank you. Ma'am, over to you. Thank you, Ritika, for leading us into the discussion today. Good evening, everyone. And I welcome you all to today's very important and relevant discussion by Dr. Samuel Bully. Um, we all know that uh, living in the digital age, there has been the role of technology and the technological revolution, so to say, in all aspects of life has been pervaded. And it is but natural for technology to play an integral role in society, politics, economy, um, and the entire humanity. So therefore, it is a matter of great delight that we have amongst us Dr. Woolley, a specialist in the field, who will be talking about the role of emerging technology in social and political maneuvering, challenges and solutions. Um, before I invite Dr. Woolley to present his, uh, make his presentation, I would like to take a couple of minutes to introduce Dr. Woolley and in fact, apprise the audience of the wonderful work that he has been pursuing. Um, so Dr. Woolley is an assistant professor in the School of uh, Journalism and an assistant professor by courtesy in the School of Information, which, is both, which are both at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the project director for propaganda research at the Center for Media Engagement at UT. Dr. Woolley is currently a research associate at the Project for Democracy and uh, the Internet at Stanford University. Previously, he has held research affiliations at the Oxford Internet Institute at University of Oxford and at the Center for Information Technology and Research in the in, uh, Interest of Society at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, so Dr. Woolley's research is uh, focused on how emergent technologies are used in and around global political communication. Um, his work on computational propaganda, the use of social media in attempts to manipulate public opinion has revealed the ways in which wide variety of political groups, especially in the United States and abroad, have leveraged the tools such as bots and trending algorithms and tactics of disinformation and also trolling in efforts to control um, the information flows online. He has extensively published on these themes um, books, re uh, refereed journals, research papers, amongst others. Uh, his research on digital politics, automation, artificial intelligence, social media, and political polarization is currently supported by grants from uh, the Omidyar Network, the Miami Foundation, the Knight Foundation, uh, among others. 
And uh, his past research funding has been from the Ford Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, uh, and many more. And in fact, his uh, work on com computational uh, propaganda and bots has been presented to the members of the US Congress, the UK Parliament, NATO, and others. And he holds a PhD in communication from uh, the University of Washington. Uh, Dr. Woolley's latest book, which is on the reality game, how the next wave of technology will break the truth, was released in January 2020 by Public Affairs in the US and Octopus Endeavor uh, in the United Kingdom. It basically explores the ways in which the emerging technologies from deep fakes to virtual reality are already being leveraged to manipulate public opinion and how they are likely to be used in the future. And he proposes, uh, very interestingly, the strategic responses to these threats with the ultimate goal of empowering the activists and pushing technology builders to design for democracy and for human rights. So very, very pertinent and topic, topical discussion that we are going to have today. And uh, also Dr. Woolley is uh, the founding director of the Digital Intelligence Lab, which is a research and policy oriented project at the Institute of Future, for the Future, a 50 year old th think tank located in California. Before this, he has served as the director of research at the National Science Foundation and European Research Council supported computational propaganda research project at the Oxford Internet Institute, University of Oxford. Uh, he's a former research fellow at Jigsaw, which is Google's think tank and technology incubator at the Center Tech Policy Lab at the University of Washington's, uh, Washington Schools near Law and Information, and at the Center for Media, Data, Society, and Central Europe, at Central Euro European University. So very interesting, and we really look forward to the talk today. Uh, welcome, Dr. Woolley. It is a privilege to have you here with us. I... Uh, formally welcome you and I invite you to begin your presentation. Over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Mehta. And thank you everybody for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, and I appreciate that grand introduction. It's always funny to hear your own bio uh, and, and very, uh, very humbling. Um, well, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the role of really of emerging technology. So technologies that are on the fringes that are just really beginning to pick up steam globally in uh, social and political maneuvering. So I'm going to go ahead and do a screen share here with you. I have a PowerPoint to share. Um, and I'm going to share a portion of my screen so that you can see this while I can see my notes. It's always a bit tricky. Thanks for bearing with me. So um, as Dr. Mehta said, uh, I study what's called computational propaganda, the use of uh, various digital tools in attempts to manipulate public opinion. Uh, and in the beginning, what that meant was that I studied, mostly studied automation. I was mostly focused on the ways in which bots, uh, so automated profiles on social media in this case, were being used uh, in attempts to amplify or suppress particular contents. Basically what we saw was governmental actors, politicians, uh, parties, other groups, including corporations, using false automated profiles in attempts to massively amplify their content while pushing out conversations about their opposition. Um, since then, I've kind of transitioned to, to looking in the, into the ways, the other ways that inorganic information operations flow. So what are the ways that political groups and political entities work to manipulate public opinion using 
various tools, any tools that they can get their hands on, uh, whether it's on WhatsApp or Facebook or, or in a VR social media system. Um, and it's been a fascinating 10 years, I will definitely say that. Uh, I, I, before I begin, I'd just like to thank um, the University of Texas at Moody, uh, Moody College of Communication, where, I, where I'm based, uh, and also um, the Center for Media Engagement, uh, which houses my lab. And, and most importantly, I'd like to thank um, IMPRI and Brie for help for hosting me. Um, I'm very happy to be here. So uh, most of what I'm going to tell you today is informed by my most recent book, uh, which is called The Reality Game, um, How the Next Wave of Technology Will Break the Truth. And despite that ominous subtitle, um, I will say that the book is very much solutions oriented. The book looks into the ways in which technologies at the edge, these emerging technologies, whether it's uh, what, what we've been discussing in the last couple of years, deep fakes or uh, other elements of artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, also v virtual reality, augmented reality and extended reality more broadly, and also uh, automated voice emulation systems that realistically mimic other your people's voices. Um, how these things can be used to manipulate public opinion how can they, they realistically be deployed? Uh, how are they being deployed now? And how might they be deployed in the future, crucially? Because uh, at this stage, it seems as if we've really been fighting yesterday's war a lot of the time. We've been thinking about, this is what happened in 2016, at least in the United States, or this is what happened several years ago. And this is, what we, this is how social media were used to manipulate public opinion. And we've been trying to figure that out. But Suffice it to say that while we've been working on those problems that exist in the past, technologists and propagandists have been massively moving forward towards a new mode of manipulation. And so my real goal with this book was to figure out where the frontier of propaganda and political maneuvering is and to discuss what the possibilities are in order for society to be able to get ahead of these problems and to think to the future rather than to think to the past. So this was very much inspired by my work at the Institute for the Future uh, in Silicon Valley. In order to understand where my research sits, it's really important to understand that you know, there's, a, there's a very rich history of propaganda research in the social sciences. In fact, some would say that propaganda research uh, was fundamental in the establishment of social scientific research. People like Walter Lippmann, uh, Edward, uh, Edward Bernays, um, uh, Laswell, Lazarsfeld, all of these very famous names that you probably know if you're a social scientist, had a, had a role in studying propaganda uh, just after World War I. The study of this stuff was massively popularized, not surprisingly, perhaps, because during World War I, there was large-scale use of manipulative tactics via the broadcast media that existed at the time to try to manipulate the public into support for the war. After the war, it came out that there had been a lot of methods of control and people were quite upset. You had people like Bernays and Lippmann come out. On the one hand, Bernays come out and say, propaganda is a necessary element of democracy and a sort of a full-throated support of the use of propaganda to extend democracy. Because basically the argument that underlies it is that you know, regular people need help to be coaxed into supporting democracy because otherwise they're easily manipulated, was Bernays' opinion. Walter Lippmann, an ex-journalist and perhaps the most famous scholar of his time uh, then, 
was a reluctant supporter of propaganda. He understood that it was a manipulative tactic, but he also believed uh, as someone that had had seen the world tumble into a world war, that propaganda was a necessary force to extend democracy. Later on, you had people like Jacques Ellul, uh, the French philosopher, uh, social scientist, uh, come out and say that, in fact, propaganda is, is ubiquitous. It is a sociological force. Rather than sort of picking up the, um, the work that was almost you know, an extension of psychology or psychological research attempting to ascertain effects. Elul said that everything around us is propaganda and it's, ex it's extended via our technological society. He was very much interested in the ways that technologies specifically uh, and, and also media played a role in allowing propaganda to exist and allowing the dominant uh, hegemonic power to be extended. Later on, uh, you had Noam Chomsky, uh, very famously Herman and Chomsky write Manufacturing Consent uh, in the 1980s. And this book uh, really extended and amended the work of Bernays, Lipman, Alul, and others. Um, but it turned the focus of what's going on with propaganda and the media and technology upon the media themselves, arguing that the media are ultimately a mouthpiece for the powerful that because of a variety of different filters and via a variety of different filters that the, that the media much of the time uh, extends the views of the powerful, that they are under the control of the powerful. And because of this, they extend the views of the powerful in order to manufacture consent, which was a term that Lippin had already, earlier used. And so taken together, you have all of these scholars and, and social scientists uh, from the humanities, uh, philosophers uh, and, and political scientists alike, discussing this idea that propaganda tends to occur, at least in modern times, at the intersection of society and technology. That there is the use of communication-oriented tools to try to manipulate public opinion for the goals of those in power, or those that are able to use those tools. So those that have access. And those things remain true today. What I will say is that the social media era has massively changed the way that propaganda plays out. That today propaganda looks a lot different than it did in the 1980s. And even Ch Herman and Chomsky's updated book of Manufacturing Consent in 2003, which attempted to go into some ways in which the internet could be used in this, uh, falls short of really being able to discuss the wi wide parameters of how propaganda has expanded in the social media era, because at that time, as we all know, Facebook was a very, very uh, was, has was, had not reached the international stage yet. the The biggest social media firm we had at that time was MySpace. We hadn't yet had Twitter and YouTube and these things. So what I talk about is computational propaganda, the ways in which uh, automation and algorithms that underlie uh, our social media systems are used in efforts to manipulate the populace, to control society, to control political conversations. And fundamentally, that's what computational propaganda is about. It's, a, it's about elements of these systems, oftentimes hidden elements like algorithms and like computer code that are leveraged in particular ways by particular groups in efforts to control others. Now, crucially, in order to leverage algorithms or automation, i.e. bots and other tools 
towards control via social media, you have to have an understanding of the back end of these products. You have to have a role uh, on the one hand, sometimes in the development of the products, or you have to have knowledge of how to use APIs, application programming interfaces, which allow you access to the back end of, say, Twitter. Twitter is a good example of a platform that has historically allowed great access to people to their API so that people can build software on top of the extant software on Twitter. So it's very much easy to automate profiles or historically has been on Twitter. When we first started studying computational propaganda, Philip Howard and I, in 2013, it was very much possible to automate your profile uh, and to launch as many fake automated profiles as you really wanted if you understood a few small things about how to avoid detection. And at the time, what we saw, we were studying the Arab Spring in particular, and at the time, what we saw was governments like the Syrian government and organizations like the Syrian Electronic Army using bots and automation to massively amplify their voices and to suppress the voices of the opposition through spam, really. It was a very heavy-handed attack. Basically, what they would do was co-opt hashtags that were being used by the opposition to organize and communicate on Twitter, and then they would just flood those hashtags with a bunch of junk so that the people that were using them could not have discussions. So that was the beginning of computational propaganda. And we've since expanded our perception of computational propaganda towards the use of what we call sock puppets. So fake accounts that are not automated and also just more broadly to the use of uh, other inor what we call inorganic communication strategies for manipulating public opinion over social media. Since we put out the uh, work on computational propaganda, there's also been more work on propaganda that extends these ideas by Bankler, Ferris, and Roberts from Harvard University. Um, and Bankler, Ferris, and Roberts' book is, is quite brilliant in the sense that it ties the use of social media and the ways in which manipulation occurs these days to the broader network of other broadcast communication tools. It makes this argument that what happens on social media is intimately and intrinsically connected to the ways in which manipulation occurs via broadcast mediums. So uh, what happens on, on Facebook is also tied here in the United States to Fox News. It's also tied to MSNBC. Um, and we can't separate those things because they're very, very secular. Uh, and the argument that Bankler, Ferris, and Roberts make is that uh, is that when something happens on social media, say a trend gets created, that trend is oftentimes reported by reporters and reporters pick the story up, they tell that story and then people decide that that is a reality. But what happens, they ask, when these trends can be manufactured? What happens when we know that political actors can manipulate the trends into their own means and ends? Uh, and this is a fascinating discussion of sort of what you might call like, obviously there's this idea of the worm Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail. It's this, this cycle where you can't figure out where the propaganda begins and ends. And it, it re, does great work reconnecting this idea of social media based propaganda to the former types of propaganda that Chomsky and Her Herman and Chomsky discussed via the media. Ultimately, what it argues is that uh, in, the, in the United States, at least, and, and this might be interesting to those of you in India, um, given uh, recent elections and uh, recent legislation, that there has been a one-sided move towards polarization, what they call affective polarization in the United States. And in the US, it's been on the right side. 
that the left and the center tend to omnivorously consume media uh, from multiple different sources and they tend to, you know, this might be a bit of an overstatement, but mostly get along. They're not as polarized, but there has been an affective polarization on the American right to the extent that they have moved further and further to the right and that they have become more and more siloed in the information that they intake. So they, they tend to go to the same sources over and over and over again. And this has a detrimental effect on the ways in which they spread propaganda uh, between their communities, but also on and offline. As a scholar of you know, propaganda today, there are really, I think, three ways that you can work to understand how propaganda flows, how it works, what the effects of it are. And this is drawn actually from a Twitter conversation from two of my colleagues, Dean Freelon at the University of North Carolina and Joe Lucido, uh, who is now within my team at the Propaganda Lab at University of Texas. And I think this is important to show for anyone who's hoping to do work on disinformation or propaganda, because oftentimes we get a little bit lost in our attempts to do analysis of this space. The three ways of understanding propaganda and disinformation today really, and this is broadly speaking, are content reception and intent. What do I mean by that? Well, first, content. Uh, it's, 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 it's useful to analyze the content of the messages that flow over social media or the content of the actual communication, to put it in communication terms. Um, and that means that we must study the ways in which the messages are actually formed, how they use hashtags, how they discuss specific places, what kinds of terminology get used in order to, to attempt to ascertain the strategies that exist in spreading this messaging. Um, and also in attempts to figure out who is spreading the messaging. And that gets to the next, uh, the next stage, which is reception. So uh, reception, um, reception is actually oriented towards like the who of who is receiving these messages, who is actually being targeted and why are they being targeted? What we found over the last 10 or so years of studying this stuff is, is that oftentimes it is already marginalized communities that are disproportionately the targets of manipulative communication campaigns over social media. In the United States, what that's meant is that it's been the Latino community or the black community, the LGBTQ community, um, or sub-segments of particular political populations uh, so oftentimes we see uh, undue focus upon manipulation uh, of segments of the right that are particularly uh, influence, influenceable um, <laughs> by this kind of messaging. And so studying reception allows us to understand uh, the different groups at the receiving end and why they are being targeted. And this is really, really crucial in order to help stop the effects of manipulative propaganda campaigns that are, that are, that are, for instance, very harassing or troll-oriented. Uh, for instance, a lot of what we see is attacks against women um, across a lot of the countries that we've studied. And so studying reception and talking, to, even talking to the people who are on the receiving end can be a very important way of understanding how this stuff works. Lastly, we have to study intent. And this is actually what I specialize in studying. Uh, intent has to do with the people who make and build propaganda campaigns. So why are they making and building these campaigns? Who do they work for? Are they internal to governments? Do they actually work for, say, the United States government or the Brazilian government or the Indian government? 
or are they contractors? Uh, are they working for PR and marketing firms that get hired by political campaigns? Are they part of political campaigns? Any, of all of, any and all of these can be true. We found absolutely fascinating stuff comparatively across multiple countries uh, that look into the ways in which intent occurs, that look into the ways in which computational propagandists operate. Um, in India, for instance, we've studied the ways that various political parties have built their own internal uh, propaganda systems to use over WhatsApp. Uh, in Brazil, similarly, we've studied the Office of Hate, which is the name that Brazilians use for the internal government office that gets used to troll citizens who speak out against Jair Bolsonaro. In the United States, we've studied the ways in which the Republican and Democratic Party hire particular political consulting groups to do uh, sort of less, uh, I wouldn't say less obvious, but I would say dress down and opaque and anonymous uh, propaganda campaigns on behalf of the political uh, candidates that hire them. So we've studied this internationally across a lot of different countries. And we found out fascinating things about the people who make and build these. And I think that this is particularly important for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that understanding intent helps us to mitigate the strategies that are used. And it also helps us to hold those who are building these things accountable. As I've studied propaganda, I've become more and more interested in you know, why there is a demand for deceit. Why do people want to be tricked? Do they want to be tricked? Why do people consume propaganda? Why do they consume conspiracy theory? Why have why has all this stuff become so popular? And so last year in January, uh, with my colleague Katie Joseph, who's a senior researcher on my team, I wrote this paper called "The Demand for Deceit," called uh, with the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington D.C. Here, and we wanted to study in particular reception, but we wanted to also study uh, intent. We wanted to study what the goal was in spreading propaganda, what the people who built these platform, platforms and, and uh, campaigns believed would happen when they built them, why they designed them the way they did, and then what actually happened when people intook the information. We came to several conclusions and we used uh, fairly basic psychological research to understand uh, the initial uh, occurrences that were happening. And so what we came to is that there were several cognitive drivers of the consumption, acceptance, and sharing of disinformation. Why, these are the reasons why people actually shared it. Um, and these are things that are going to be very familiar to anyone that's done basic psychological research. So for instance, belief perseverance effect is a passive driver, something that people don't think about, but that causes them to intake conspiracy theory and propaganda. And uh, it's basically the, the continued influence of the initial conclusions that, that could be based on false information or, or novel information on someone's decision-making and their individual beliefs. So if you've already been exposed to something, if you already believe something, that belief is likely to persevere. Another active driver of why people consume conspiracy theory and propaganda is, the, is what's known as confirmation bias, which suggests that we already seek out information that is in agreement with our pre-existing beliefs. And so it's not necessarily that filter bubbles exist online, then the research is out on this, it's, it's, it's inconclusive. 
but it's that we already work to seek out information that agrees with what we believe. And so the social media systems, unless they're built in such a way that they force us to be omnivorous, say, intakers of the news, we will seek out what confirms our bias. And so these are, these are just things that bear mentioning as we get into the next two case, uh, case studies, if you will, um, because I want you to understand like the why of why people actually buy into this stuff and how it's actually effective. We have two major proje projects right now at the propaganda team uh, at the University of Texas. The first is what we're calling the encrypted propaganda project and it's focused upon the use of encrypted messaging applications or encrypted messaging platforms like WhatsApp, like Signal, Telegram. Um, of course, these things have been around for quite a while. You, you probably wouldn't really call them emerging media, especially in pl a place like India or uh, in Brazil. That being said, in many parts of the Western world, these applications are just beginning to be popularized. They're just beginning to become uh, a, a popular route of communication in part because of political events that are happening in these countries. So deplatforming, for instance, in the United States, wherein you see people on the far right being kicked off of mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook, they move to places like Telegram, which are more protected. They move to places like Signal and Parler. In fact, the New York Times has done great coverage of why this is occurring. And so what we wanted to do was study the ways in which propaganda flows in these spaces. And with support from the Amidiar network, uh, we decided that we were going to do qualitative analysis of this because these spaces are encrypted, right? We can't get access to the, to the quantitative data. Well, at least we can't get access ethically. And um, that's very much important to us. So we wanted to study intent and production. Uh, and we wanted to do so in four different countries. So over the last two years, we've done 50 plus interviews in Brazil, India, Mexico, and the United States, primarily with the producers of propaganda campaigns. So in India, that's meant that we've talked to a lot of IT Yodas uh, that work for the BJP and that work for other political parties. Um, uh, it's also meant that we've talked to political campaigns and political groups that work and specialize in digital campaigning. We've talked to marketing and PR firm uh, experts, and we've, we've, gathered a lot of very interesting findings, which I'll get into in just a second. We've also done a content analysis of media reports. Our basic belief here is that uh, when the media is able to pick up on manipulation campaigns um, in a particular region, they oftentimes give us a lot of leads towards who we should be talking to and, and who we should reach out to. So oftentimes this is a useful uh, part of our attempt to reach out to the people who are behind these things. And we, through this, we've, exhausted a, uh, we've put together an exhaustive comparative data set, which is a case list across all of the countries that we're analyzing. For instance, in India, we have, I believe, around 100 cases of times when WhatsApp has been used during specific political events or specific social events in order to try to manipulate public opinion. And we discuss all the news articles that surround this, um, all of the key players involved, what the, what the, uh, what the core portions or parts of this uh, case might be. And it's been fascinating. It says three countries, but it should be four. And the reason it says three is because we added Brazil later um, uh, for a variety of reasons. We've also done a lot of open source intelligence work, uh, including digital forensics of memes, memes and viral content. Most of the times our open source intelligent work, our open source intelligence work looks like uh, attempts to track back, excuse me, to track back 
uh, who is behind a given campaign in order to contact them and speak to them, or in order to be able to say other interesting things about a given campaign. Some cursory findings on this project. We actually have a paper under submission for, uh, for a journal right now. And if you're interested in this, you can also find our white paper at the Center for Media Engagement at University of Texas's website that details these findings in greater depth that was released uh, last fall. We find that there are increasingly complex tactics for top-down political manipulation over closed messaging systems in India, Mexico, and the United States. So governments and political groups are increasingly coming up with very complicated and unique strategies for working to manipulate public opinion through systems like WhatsApp in all three of these countries. So we know, for instance, that WhatsApp plays a massive role in India. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Um, but it's also true that in Mexico and the United States that these, this platform is becoming a place where manipulation occurs. And that is worrying for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is the fact that these spaces are encrypted. So they're very difficult for academics to study. And if we can't study them, then how do we develop knowledge about how the campaigns occur? The second major finding that we have is that there are feed feedback loops between these encrypted networks, between WhatsApp and politicians on mainstream platforms, namely on Twitter. So in the United States, for instance, before Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter, we found that the manipulation campaigns and strategizing campaigns that were occurring on platforms like WhatsApp, Telegram, and Signal amongst propagandists were being leveraged at exploiting and manipulating people like Trump and his proxies on Twitter. So oftentimes what we were seeing was an incubation of ideas and manipulation uh, tactics in closed systems with the intention of taking those manipulation campaigns to more mainstream platforms in order to manipulate politicians, but also to manipulate uh, other citizens. We also see that uh, people like Modi, but also uh, Trump and Bolsonaro uh, call out to people who are helping them to do political campaigning or political messaging over WhatsApp, but they call out to them oftentimes on Twitter in a public fora saying basically, uh, congratulations to XYZ people. And there's, there's become a, a give and take between the groups that do this manipulation and the politicians that oftentimes are leading the countries. And third, and I think most importantly and most uniquely, uh, relational organizing is inherent to the manipulative power of these platforms. Relational organizing speaks to the intimacy of groups on WhatsApp. It's a term from marketing. And it's this idea that the more intimate your connection with someone, the more likely they are to be able to change your mind. And so the fact that WhatsApp groups are, you know, at around at, at the max 240 people, and the fact that you oftentimes know the people that you're interacting with or feel like you know them or know them through a friend or have some degree of intimacy with them is a very uh, a powerful method of manipulating you. So the psychology shows that the best way to change your, your uh, political beliefs is to talk to someone you care about. So they say that if you want to actually change someone's opinion, like if, you're, if your dad or your mom has a particular political view, you actually have quite a good chance of changing their opinion because they care about you. It's very unlikely though, that a random bot profile on social media will have very much success at actually changing your mind about a given political view, right? 
Um, and that wasn't what we were arguing to be clear in the early days of computational propaganda. What we were actually arguing was the bots were being used to manipulate the algorithms. So they were being used to drive up trends and to manip manipulate trends. So it was more computer to computer, computer communication. And that what ultimately uh, manipulated people was, was the news articles and other things that got written about those trends. Um, suffice to say though, that on, uh, on encrypted spaces, relational organizing has become very much the center of these kinds of manipulation tactics, not just in India or Brazil, but also across the world. And so what we see is that um, the use of nano influencers, which are basically small scale influencers uh, who have under 5,000 followers, follow what is happening on platforms like WhatsApp. They're oftentimes recruited by political parties to try to communicate with their smaller communities. They're paid small amounts of money to do this. They don't disclose that they are paid money to do what they do. Um, and because they have small followings and because they are not what you would call a celebrity influencer by any means, they're actually able to have a more intimate connection with their audiences and more effectively manipulate them. Pods are basically organized groups of influencers that uh, like one another's content or help to spread one another's content. And so as this stuff uh, metastasizes from WhatsApp and goes to spaces like Instagram or TikTok, the nano influencers actually coordinate likes, shares, comments, and they're able to give, much like what we saw with bots, the illusion of pop popularity, organic popularity, I guess I should say, to the content that's appearing. And um, if I was to say that I, what I was most concerned about when it comes to propaganda today, I would say that it's the use of relational organizing. It's the use of these partisan nano influencers in the place of things like bots and soft puppets, because it's a more sophisticated strategy for actually manipulating people's psychology, manipulating people's politics. The second project that we have is, is on geopropaganda, and it's focusing upon the use of location data by campaigns, super PACs, lobbyists, and other political groups to influence political discussions and decisions. Everyone knows about this idea or this, this phenomenon, the Cambridge Analytica scandal in the United States um, in 2016. Uh, but what a lot of people don't discuss is the fact that Cambridge Analytica by and large was using Facebook's ads dashboard as it was meant to be built. The whole smoke and mirrors campaign of saying that they were doing psychographic marketing where they were able to actually effectively target individuals via their data sets that they had illegally scraped was mostly untrue. In fact, what they did was target micro demographics in particular states that swing states. Um, and ultimately the result of Cambridge Analytica, but also a, a several other things was that the Facebook graph API, this, 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 this way of accessing this kind of demographic, hyper-specific demographic data was shut off, shut off to these groups. And there was a curbing of the types of ways that you could target specific groups on Facebook, particularly if you're attempting to target them by say the color of their skin, uh, which was something that we saw Cambridge Analytica do. And so with geopropaganda, what we've seen is that political groups are working to recreate, to back their way into the Facebook graph API by gathering any data that they can. And oftentimes the way that they gather data these days is, well, by buying it from intermediaries, of course, there's lots of data brokers out there, also by purchasing people's credit data, but also through geo, uh, geolocation data. 
So everyone tends to carry a phone these days. Uh, there's lots of us have smartphones in our pocket right now. Um, and that smartphone tracks where we go. Various applications on the smartphone tell those who are willing to pay for the data where we spend our time, whether it's at a particular church uh, or mosque, uh, or whether it is at a, the, in the United States, maybe it's the gun range, or maybe someone's going to the abortion clinic. Um, that is very powerful data for, for a political campaign to have their hands on. And so what we've attempted to start doing is studying the ways in which this data gets deployed for manipulation. And so we've done 30 plus interviews and field work with campaigns, firms, and organizations that leverage this data from geolocation and not just from geo, geolocation data from your cell phone, but also geofencing, wherein you draw a perimeter around a particular location and then anyone with a smartphone who goes in has their information sent back to the source. Bluetooth beacons, which operate similarly. We've actually, in fact, seen campaigns in the United States put Bluetooth beacons, which are basically a little signal tracker, inside their yard signs that they put in people's yards in the United States. And then when you walk by, it tracks who's walking by. And uh, also from Wi-Fi signals and other cell data, and also from drones increasingly. So drone, drone usage during the protests uh, uh, surrounding the death of uh, the murder of George Floyd were also used to gather people's location data. All of this is being combined to send political messaging during the, 20, the past 2020 election, but also around the world. Uh, again, we've done construct, uh, content analysis of media reports, but we've also been working to do policy analyses. Um, and suffice to say that we're finding very, very interesting things. And in fact, we just launched a website where we have people like Yale Eisenstadt, uh, Corey Doctorow, and others um, speaking to geopropaganda and how it works. And so if you're interested in cursory findings on this geopropaganda project, which is a little bit newer than the other projects, so we don't have as much to share, please go to that website and check it out because it's a great place to learn about the basics of, of how geolocation works and what the implications are, both in terms of surveillance and in terms of propaganda. And so if we zoom out, really what we're trying to do here is connect surveillance and the latest surveillance technology to propaganda and say that actually all that data that gets gathered through surveillance ends up being used to propagandize to us later on. I make a couple provocations in the reality game um, in my book, and I just want to end with those before we get into some Q&A. The first is that, uh, is that the social media tools that we use uh, that we currently know and love or hate, or maybe love and hate, um, are, are built with particular uses in mind. Uh, anyone who's watched the recent Netflix show, The so Social Dilemma, understands these sorts of things. But the basic idea here is that, um, that these systems are optimized for advertising. They're optimized for time spent on the platform. They want us to spend as much time as possible there. They're not optimized for good quality information. They were never built to be spaces where we would consume the news. They became that over time. And if we accept the fact that these platforms curate information to us, which I think is inarguable, the algorithms that are built there are built to show us trends. They are built to show us what we should, should consume. These platforms over the course of time have also done a lot of recommending to people of what they should read and how. Then we begin to understand the fact that these platforms are flawed informational environments. They're built in such a way that they do not prioritize democracy or human rights. In fact, they prioritize popularity. And that's a big problem because it means that 
attempts to manipulate the popularity of things which we know occur on these systems can result in very undue things. And so one provocation that I have in the reality game is that what, is what would it look like to begin to design tools with the tenets of human rights and democracy in mind? And I mean small d democracy, I don't mean US democracy. So what would it look like to encode our platforms with those sorts of values rather than the values of uh, that, that I've just discussed? People like Safia Noble, who wrote Algorithms of Oppression, uh, and Virginia Eubanks um, have made great arguments and done absolutely fantastic research about the ways in which people's values are input into the algorithms. So the coders, you know, maybe passively, maybe actively put their own values into these algorithms and into the code. What would it look like to change that for the sake of human rights and democracy? What would a, what would a social media platform built with the human rights in mind look like? I don't know. The second provocation is that we need public interest technologists that uh, in the 1950s in the United States, at least we had this, there was a revelation amongst civil society groups that we really needed public interest lawyers, that most lawyers that were graduating from top law schools were going to work for corporate firms, they were going to where they could make the most money. Uh, the same is true today. Most of the students that are being trained in computer science or information science are going to firms that will pay them the top dollar. They'll, they're going to Google, they're going to Facebook, uh, Uber, Tesla, you name it, Amazon. Um, and the other provocation in this book is how do we encourage students of computer science who understand the inner workings of these, this code to go to work in the interest of the public, to go to work for the government, to go to work for civil society groups, and to help us to build policy that actually responds to this problem in a sophisticated manner that actually is built on an understanding of how the tools operate rather than some kind of reactionary stance that is built on uh, further attempts to control the system or uh, that is built on fear and the desire to just satiate the public because the public's calling out for control of the platforms, but uh, really a lack of understanding about how the platforms or the tools actually work. Specifically, I have in mind several of the bots bills that have been introduced in the United States across multiple states here that basically call for a banning of all bots on the internet, which is absolutely asinine because bots are infrastructural to the internet. They're used for all sorts of different tasks. They're basically any automated software code. And so uh, what we need in many ways is public interest technologists and we have to ask ourselves, how do we build that? If you're looking for resources on this talk and the things that I've discussed, there's several out there. UT Center for Media Engagement, uh, where I'm at, uh, has lots. Um, including information and reports on the on the encrypted messaging apps project and the geolocation project I've discussed. First Draft News has fantastic work with journalists and civil society organizations training them how to do uh, spotting of disinformation and more advanced fact checking in an era where we know that simple fact checking doesn't really tend to work. It actually tends to solidify people's uh, beliefs in something when a top down organization says, hey, you're wrong. First Draft has great information on what to do in those cases. Harvard's Technology and Social Change Project, led by Joan Donovan, is another fantastic, fantastic research organization that does a lot of ethnographic, qualitative work, helping to understand extremist groups and the ways that they leverage these tools for manipulation. And finally, if you're looking for pragmatic tools that you can actually use, technologies, uh, whether it's browser plugins or apps or bot detection tools, RAND Corporation here in the United States has a whole page uh, of tools that are used to fight disinformation that you can download 
and uh, use to your benefit or your organization's benefit. Thank you very much. Uh, this has been really fun. Um, forgive me, uh, it's a bit early here. So I, I, if I've stumbled over words and things, uh, forgive me for that, but I'm excited to have a Q&A. And so please feel free to ask any questions that you might have. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was uh, just a delight to listen to such interesting insights and wonderful presentation. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Wooly. And uh, um, so I'll just quickly uh, make my uh, share my remarks and then we'll open it up for discussion. We also have uh, a researcher with us um, uh, at IMPI, you know, Miss um, Kashish. She'd also like to make some points. Uh, so, you know, uh, what emerges from your views? I mean, I'm sorry, I, I oh, got okay. muted. I got muted. So, uh, what uh, actually my, uh, my thoughts are, uh, what emerges from your works is a very, very powerful assessment of, uh, um, you know, the mind market. And uh, this, uh, this mind market is all up for grabs and technology and social media, they have not lost uh, any single inch of opportunity, uh, which is then being uh, uh, exploited by the political actors, the political players for their benefits. So um, very, very eye-opening uh, insights that you have uh, provided. And, and you know, when we translate these um, uh, into the political frameworks of different countries, I could take India as an example. Um, uh, and and how the political actors can navigate through through uh, these various uh, channels to achieve their political objectives uh, in in all this process certainly the noble objectives of truth the uh, you know defense of justice the plurality etc all this respect for plurality etc it all becomes seriously compromised because as you were mentioning in your uh, lecture also about the social media, use of social media in India's elections, certainly um, uh, all political parties, all um, uh, political actors, they have their uh, um, uh, social media team or so-called the WhatsApp army, the social media army that they call. And uh, they are very proud of it. And uh, it's not something which is really hidden. It's all up there, out there uh, that, uh, you know, you are hiring uh, this particular agency, this particular firm who would really enable you to uh, win, the, win the elections. So the, the propagation of propaganda is brilliantly maneuvered, I would say, right to the person at the top from where the directions are coming and uh, going to the bottom, to the, to the grassroots population. Uh, wherein in India, a lot of uh, users of smartphones of such technology are quite new. And they are um, simply, uh, you know, they, they wonder, wow, wow what, a, uh, what a device it is or what a technology um, that they have at their hand. And certainly I feel that this is perhaps one of the reason that the, the whole idea of deceit comes uh, into fruition. Um, that they're having something which they haven't witnessed before and uh, they're able to communicate in real time with their leaders who, uh, who otherwise they are, you know, when, when they are in their respective offices, they would not uh, ideally engage with them. So this is an opportunity. This is some sort of an empowerment, I feel, which people feel for even if it is an, for an ad hoc time for a temporary time that they feel that, yes, they have this power within them 
that they are equal or whatever, not equal partners, but they are partners towards uh, the realization of uh, the goals of uh, whichever um, side of the ideology uh, that they support. So uh, very, very interesting. And, uh, and, and when you... Simi, uh, unmute yourself. Sorry, I, I don't know what's wrong. Yeah, so uh, you were talking about the privacy and encrypted applications, etc. You may have heard about the WhatsApp uh, uh, issue, which uh, because of uh, the privacy, it was not able to maintain or secure the privacy of the conversations of the people, of the users. A major chunk of population or users, they just moved to um, Signal and other platforms. So so-called the secure platforms. Um, and, and such platforms, like um, uh, they have a lot of exchanges that take place, you know, like through WhatsApp, for example, even banking services, customer care, um, uh, travel agencies, etc. They are all there on WhatsApp for quicker communication. And so certainly I believe that there is a lot of data that is uh, there at their disposal and uh, they can really monetize it. Uh, and uh, monetization and then uh, I, I cannot, um, you know, comprehend uh, what other use use uh, that these uh, data can can really uh, bring for them, or uh, how how are they helping uh, these these companies, big companies? And finally, uh, my one question to you is about, uh, uh, you know, do you think in the age of technology and social media revolution, the conventional mass media? Uh, you know, they have their image of providing the kind of information that the people need to understand or to make sense of the world that they are living in. They are not able to catch up in the race. And, or is it that uh, even the mass media, the conventional mass media, they are also bandwagoning with these uh, other uh, new, newer technologies uh, just in an attempt to remain relevant. So uh, if you could share your thoughts on that, and uh, we, we'll then open up uh, for discussion. Back to you. Yeah. Um, so fantastic points, uh, uh, Dr. Mehta. Um, you know, uh, it's been it's been fascinating to watch the sort of, if you want to call it, the diaspora of of people away from WhatsApp and to these other applications. Um, it's also been fascinating to look at the ways in which political campaigns have picked up the use of particular applications just because they feel that they must stay relevant, uh, they must stay on top of things, and that if one party is going to use a particular tool in a particular way, then uh, the other parties are going to do it as well. Um, and so it's not just that there's a bandwagon effect amongst uh, the people who are looking at the particular types of content that appear because of manipulation campaigns. It's also that there's a bandwagon effect amongst the people that are in leadership positions of saying, well, uh, if they're going to do it, then we're going to do it. There's this idea of, in the United States, of the fire hose of falsehood. And at what time does this fire hose get turned off? Uh, the, simply there is so much noise online at this stage uh, when it comes to conversations about politics or about social events or about healthcare. I saw one of the uh, questions in the Q&A is about health, uh, about the coronavirus vaccine, that people don't know what to believe anymore. Um, and so the same, the same mechanism that allowed for almost anyone to become a quote unquote journalist online with Twitter has also allowed nearly anyone to become a uh, witting or unwitting propagandist online. 
Uh, and so we have to figure out what we can do to preserve the informational environment and to uh, input safeguards upon that environment that prevent this kind of misuse that leads to these sorts of bandwagon effects amongst a variety of different kinds of groups. Because what we, the, the premise of my next book, which is called Manufacturing Consensus, which builds on uh, Herman and Chomsky's work, uh, is this idea that consensus gets built through these applications, that there's this illusion of popular support for ideas because of these inorganic information manipulation efforts, whether it's through bots or sock puppets or uh, nano influencers, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that when people see that something is popular, we know psychologically that that has an effect upon what they believe. We know it has an effect upon what they share. As one of the Q&A uh, folks points out, people irresponsibly share content. If they see lots of other people are sharing it, they're much more willing to share it. We know that it's possible to amplify particular types of content online. And so, yes, uh, you know, there's an interesting, there's an interesting connection to be had there. Uh, and this is, this, yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you for your response, uh, Dr. Bully. Uh, I would now invite uh, Ms. Kashish uh, to make a points. Uh, Kashish? Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Mehta. Uh, good evening, or I would say good morning, sir. Um, I'm an undergraduate student pursuing political science honors. And uh, so sort of longer uh, comment precedes my question. So I hope you would excuse that. Uh, you mentioned the Arab Spring and in recent times in the Indian subcontinent, we've been witnessing what you might call an Indian Spring. There have been two major national protests enacted by laws that were passed by the government. And they've been met with massive propaganda, both from the far right and even the left. Um, if we sort of do an analysis of both the movements and their ability to sustain themselves in the society, I believe um, that the farmers, I'm mentioning the movement against the Citizenship Amendment Act and the movement against the farmers law. And in particular, the, uh, the protests that was led by the farmers, um, they had a very coordinated mechanism of uh, producing counter narratives against the uh, propaganda they were met with. They started their own newsletter in various languages. They set up their own website. They had their own YouTube channels. They had um, media, local media channels covering them. So um, moving forward, do you think uh, social movements will have to consider their ability to produce counter narratives as the, one of the most crucial factors that will ensure the survival or uh, do you think it, I mean, do you think it's like the single most important crucial factor for the survival? Yeah, that's what I would like to ask. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kashish. These are fantastic uh, comments. Um, yes, I think content moderation is going to be extremely important. And we have to ask ourselves a question, where is this content moderation going to come from? Uh, we've seen Mark Zuckerberg and other tech leaders sit before the US Congress and make statements that artificial intelligence is going to be the savior of, of our problems as they currently exist. And it's because this problem that we're discussing, whether it's on Facebook or WhatsApp, which is another Facebook owned platform, um, is, is massive. Facebook scaled to, be, to have billions of users, now over 2 billion users. And so the question is, how do we do content moderation of that size of a problem? Well, first, what I would say is that we should not accept the fact that, that we have to uh, we have to say that scale is, is, is our fault. I think that the companies themselves made these decisions of scale without thinking about the ramifications of how they would manage the content at that scale. Uh, but secondarily, I think we have to also ask how we can have cultural nuance when it comes to content moderation 
when these things are occurring at scale. And the social media companies themselves are having a lot of problems with figuring out how to build artificial intelligence platforms that actually understand cultural nuance. I mean, anyone that, that is a computer scientist will tell you that the first problem that you will encounter with, a, with building an AI system or a machine learning system is that these systems are not that great at getting nuance. Cultural nuance is a big one because that's, that's, that, that is very so much even within a particular region or city. Um, but, but, you know, this isn't mentioning things like humor or sarcasm, which a computer algorithm has a really hard time understanding, um, because a lot of those are bound up in cultural references. And so to get back to your point, uh, Kashish, I think that, that, that community groups do have to do some of this work that what we're finding in the United States, India, Brazil, is that oftentimes it's the groups that are under attack by these propaganda campaigns or disinformation campaigns that band together to work to identify false information or manipulative types of information. It's a, it's a good solution in the sense that these people understand the circumstance at hand, but it's an imperfect solution because a lot of times these groups are already underfunded, they're undersupported, and they don't have a lot of resources. And so uh, moving forward, I think what we have to ask of civil society, of funding organizations and of the, of the platforms themselves is to figure out how to work with civil society groups, with movement-based organizations, with activists who are on the receiving end of this kind of propaganda and who can do the content moderation in a way that effectively um, crowdsources our efforts to be more culturally sensitive and to be more culturally specific as we work to moderate this content. Right. Thank you, Dr. Willie. Uh, I would invite uh, Ms. Chavi, she's a researcher at IMPRI, uh, to share her remarks and Please. questions if you have. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh, uh, good evening, and thank you so much for your wonderful talk, Dr. Samuel. Uh, I'm an undergraduate student uh, pursuing political science and economics and a researcher at MT. So uh, a few years back, I read uh, an article on the New York Times, and it was about a young white man in America who identified as liberal, who got uh, sucked into a vortex of far-right prop far propaganda through YouTube's algorithm. And a key feature of these YouTubers uh, was that they weren't obnoxiously shouting their views. They hid their misogynistic, racist views behind a cover of skits and sketches, basically to attract audiences. So this young man, his name was Caleb Kane. His name is Caleb Kane. He felt that he was facing an uncomfortable truth because he was viewing videos such as um, how gender progressive policies are holding back young men like him. So as you mentioned, the familiarity, how people uh, tend to consume content that, that is familiar to them, something that they can identify with. So my question is that, do you think is the responsibility of platforms such as YouTube to censor such content? Or do you think that individuals themselves need to be more careful, more vigilant in the content that they consume online? Thank you. Fantastic question, Chavi. Um, I, I, I think that, first of all, what I would say is that this is a common story and a common phenomenon um, that are really important to surface and to, to let people know about, which is that um, people are radicalized using these platforms. The work of Becca Lewis and Joan Donovan certainly points these things out. There's a fantastic paper that I would point anyone on the call to, which is uh, Alternative Influence which is all about YouTube and the ways in which it pushes people towards more and more radical content, but also specifically the ways in which YouTube 
these these what what I would say are extremists, but perhaps hidden extremists, the ways in which they leverage relational organizing and intimacy and hey, I'm just like you, uh, and these methods of manipulation in getting people to believe what they want them to believe. That paper is is my go-to there. Um, in terms of your question, I, I think the answer is yes, absolutely. I think that YouTube has to limit the ways in which it prioritizes hateful content or specific kinds of videos. It has to have a system for doing so. It can't be willy nilly. It can't just be built on nothing. Uh, at present, we've seen a fairly ad hoc um, sort of scrambling response to figure out how to prevent the spread of these kinds of videos. And I think we need to see a transparent system for how these videos are blocked. I specifically think that we need to work to block videos that that uh, that include hate speech that are that are targeted at specific protected groups. Uh, so if they're targeting religious groups, if they're targeting uh, minority groups, uh, etc., if they're targeting women, then they they should we should consider blocking those kind that kind of content from being recommended at the very least, maybe not from appearing because we want to be able to preserve free speech. But for YouTube to recommend that content to people is 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 terrible. We also should be preventing recommendation of electoral mis and disinformation. Anything that's telling people mistruths on how, when, or where to vote or how to engage in politics is absolutely should be out of the question in terms of recommendations and perhaps even from appearing on these sites. Um, and finally, what I would say is that we know that there's there's good research out there, including research recently from a team of researchers at Brazil, that shows us that recommendations of extreme content, particularly in the United States context, but also elsewhere, uh, particularly extreme right content, but also sometimes extreme left content will be prioritized within a couple of videos on YouTube. And that oftentimes the ways in which people receive that content is through the YouTube recommendation system. And so that is a big problem. And it's something that YouTube has to cop to and figure out. Uh, I'll end by saying that YouTube has attempted to keep itself out of these conversations about disinformation, propaganda, and political manipulation by saying that it's not a problem on their platform as much, but they can no longer do that. This is, you know, that's a dead on a, a dead on arrival argument. It does not work anymore. And so Google has to step up to the plate and actually work to respond. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Dr. Willie, for responding to that. Uh, I would invite Dr. Arjun Kumar, he is the director of IMPRI, to share his comments. Thank you. Thank you, Sim. Thank you so much, Dr. Samuel Willie, for uh, enlightening us with your very interesting lecture. I had a few questions since we deal with policy and their impact. Uh, now, all the schemes and all the programs also have MIS data, and you were mentioning the geolocation and algorithm. There also we are using it for, let us say, if we are giving toilets or housing or other things, those things are also uh, getting geolocated. So how do you see the security or the usability part of it? Not directly, but indirectly, it is also used for social and political uh, purposes. My uh, second question was that, how do you foresee uh, that in this pandemic, when we are also mining the health data, and also to target uh, for vaccine or other purposes. Uh, do you see that uh, international, national, or any other players would use it for commercial or political use, especially the, this health dimension? Because there we one has to you know act very quickly, especially in this pandemic. 
uh, and my third question was that how do you see china's response to it because they have their own vpn and their own internet so will that be a way to go because in us we also saw that uh, russia's hand was there in all these things so there are uh, a lot of international players are also getting it in this uh, digital and misinformation things so how do you see the international cooperation uh, leading to uh, stop this kind of practices and lastly i just also wanted to know that uh, all the governments are also saying that uh, uh, you have to regulate or control content also by yourself so how do you see this uh, self management uh, provocacy uh, uh, which uh, every government is taking will it work and how do you see the road ahead thank you please unmute sir yes yes Yes. Thank you, Dr. Kumar. Um, okay, so on the first question about geolocation being built into a lot of tools, I think it's a question really about the Internet of Things and about the ways in which everything is really connected these days. Uh, I think we have to be very careful uh, and that we need strict policy to think through the ways in which geolocation occurs or, or other types of uh, other types of data, whether it's healthcare data or otherwise, are collected and how they are used. Right now, there's not a lot of legislation that prevents the transfer of this kind of data into commercial hands. And that's that is true with your second question about uh, coronavirus and COVID, as it is with the question about geolocation data. Even in the United States, we don't see a lot of robust, robust regulations um, that work to protect people's personal data. Uh, and so suffice to say, we are in desperate need internationally um, of policy that works to regulate how this data gets collected, who can have access to it, how it's stored, and all of these sorts of things, because ultimately it can be used indirectly, as you say, for political manipulation and other purposes. And that's unacceptable, right? To have our to have our data turned back upon us. And I mean, really, ultimately, it's a question of privacy. It's a question of of it's a question of a fundamental human right, uh, which is which is you know uh, our freedom, um, our freedom to to feel that we're not being tracked at every turn. Um, it's not to say that this kind of information can't have positive effects. It's not to say that we shouldn't have uh, contact tracing and that we can't use data for positive purposes. But it is to say that we have to have sensible regulation in order for people to trust these mechanisms. Otherwise, we'll just see the metastasization of conspiracy theory and people believing that all the information that's being collected on them, whether it's for a global pandemic or whether it's for you know, a political campaign will be used for the same sorts of ends because they don't know where it ultimately ends up. So I kind of think that gets to the second question in a way, although I would point you to uh, an article that I wrote in Foreign Affairs um, uh, with my colleague Katie Joseph uh, back in May of last year, which is titled COVID-19 isn't the only threat to privacy. And it's all about the ways in which geolocation data is tied internationally uh, to this more broad scale data collection effort uh, in the co during the, during the COVID-19 pandemic and the ways in which policy and regulation fall short and what we have to do uh, to address that. Um, your third question about China, China's a unique case. Uh, China, China has, um, China has its own, its own systems for control uh, that have existed since the internet was, was introduced in China. Um, Shanti Calafil and Boaz, uh, Calafil and Boaz wrote a fantastic paper in the early 2000s called uh, Open Networks, Closed Regimes, about uh, the ways in which countries like China, but also Singapore and others, 
have worked to control their internet since the implementation of the internet. And so the Chinese case is very, very different from, say, for instance, the case in India or the cases in the United States. Uh, we have to understand that there are ranking systems that people use in China, uh, uh, social ranking, um, in order to, to track you know, their, their citizenship and, and their success as a citizen in China. There's multiple systems that exist, whether they're private systems or public systems. And that these systems are systems in which people are willingly inputting data to show that they're good citizens into these various systems and that the end result will likely be that the government has a consolidated system that has a tremendous amount of information, not just on where people are going or what they're doing, but also on what they believe and what they believe to be truthful and popular. Um, these systems are also combined with ways of tracking citizens' crimes. Uh, you have strikes in the systems, you know, if you, if you, if you do very petty things that are, that are minor infractions. And so uh, what it ultimately uh, results to or amounts to is a public record is a is a, um, is a is a permanent record for citizens in China, um, and that's very very worrying. It's it's not just worrying internally, but it's also worrying externally because we have to ask ourselves these questions: How will the same sorts of tools be deployed by China in other countries? And this is not to mention the fact that China uses has begun using propaganda to a greater degree abroad whether it's in India or, you know, cross straits in, in Taiwan. We've seen it in Taiwan and Tibet for a number of years now, but also Hong Kong, but also in the United States, also in other countries that China has business interests in uh, or political geopolitical interests in. Uh, we've started to see China expanding its propaganda efforts. Um, so if you, you know, if you want to understand how China does this work, the work of uh, King, Penn and Roberts, uh, um, Gary King is at Harvard, uh, Jennifer Penn's now at Stanford, and uh, uh, Molly Roberts is at UCSD. They've done fantastic work to understand the propaganda apparatuses exist inside of China. And I think we'll see a similar way of uh, spreading this outside of China. Um, I'm blanking on your fourth question. It was on self-regulation. How, how do you see ah, that? Self-regulation. Yeah, you know, um, I do believe that people, we need to train people in order to be able to, to, to uh, okay, so I do believe that we need to train people to be able to spot this stuff. So, so some of the burden is upon users to, to do this work. That being said, I'm very wary of companies saying that this is a user-based issue only and that they don't have responsibility to help. I do think that the companies have to self-regulate. I do think that the companies have to do things to work to empower users, to work to protect their users, whether it's through design or otherwise. Um, and so, I, in some, what I think is that we have to have a combination of both user-based fixes that are educational, educationally oriented and more long-term. So we have to implement design literacy, media literacy, information literacy. Um, we also have to have the companies self-regulate. We also have to have sensible policies that hold the companies accountable because it's not enough that in five years that they say, oh, we've done our part. Now we're going to throw off of the self-regulations because remember a, lo a lot of the changes that have been made by these companies are not enforceable should they decide that they don't want to do them anymore. Right. Thank you. Simi, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Arjun, for sharing your uh, questions. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, content regulation, there are other further ramifications as well, because um, there needs to be, you know, in the name of content regulation, uh, things like moral policing also crop up. 
and this is specifically targeted against particular groups like uh, women or even minority groups so the possible fallouts can be massive and uh, also about um, when you when you were referring to the uh, rand document on uh, um, security privacy etc uh, i would like to uh, ask you uh, about your views on what security privacy and uh, civil rights protection should be ensured or should be put in place to ensure that uh, the appropriate and sustainable application of these technologies are there in in law enforcement and how much can we really uh, totally um, rely upon these in terms of um, law enforcement and uh, um, so you have uh, mostly covered most of the questions uh, from the from the chat box as well you have covered the china question and also uh, about um, about the content regulation there is a question by ishika choudhury she says that sir with increasing deep fakes and fake news i want to ask you how we can increase awareness among the people because this is the crux that how we are going to save ourselves or how we are going to see the way forward so if you could respond to these yeah uh when it comes to um law enforcement's use of these kinds of technologies and when it comes to policing i think that we have to we have to continue to ask some very very serious questions about the kinds of technologies that law enforcement has access to and the ways in which these technologies get deployed i recently uh joel carter uh, who's one of the researchers on my team along with justin hendricks who who oversees tech policy press which is a new uh or a new entity here in the united states doing fantastic work wrote a piece called this uh, about an nypd and the NYPD, uh, New York Police Department recently had to disclose uh, the types of surveillance technologies that they were using on citizens. And, and, um, and the conclusion that we came to is that the disclosure raised a lot more questions than it did answers. And it made us uh, very concerned because there was a lot of obfuscation of why a lot of these, the people working to track and, uh, and uh, surveil citizens in the city of New York, but you know, brought on a broader scale, citizens of the world, the citizens of the United States, uh, um, in, in, uh, citizens of India, depending on the law enforcement group, is, uh, is that they use these tools really with impunity at the moment. Um, that in Europe, there are, there are some laws that exist on the books and a few other countries around the world have some laws, but that right now, because of a lack of understanding, there is a lack of oversight of the ways in which the kinds of data that we're discussing are fall into the hands of law enforcement or may be used for the purposes of of uh, political malfeasance uh, or political repercussions you know take for instance places like russia where you have navalny in prison and being denied uh, treatment for illness um, I think that Russia is a great case of a, of a country wherein this kind of information in the hands of law enforcement could have extremely detrimental effects. And so it's not just a question of the fact that we need regulation, because we know that the Russian government has a large degree of corruption when it comes to regulation and the elections there are not fair. Um, so the companies that are actually building these products have to ask themselves very specific questions because a lot of the companies that are building the project products are actually based in democracies they are based they, they are based in the united states and then they're selling these products to groups in places like russia or places like saudi arabia or china and that brings up some very serious serious questions so perhaps one of the ways that we hold those companies accountable is by creating policy in our own countries to stop what they can share with particular groups particular organizations 
Um, as to the question uh, about how we train people, I think we have to train people on the pragmatics because there's been a lot of fear about deep fakes and what they can do, but we haven't really seen it come to fruition. Suffice to say that GAN networks, which are the thing, the technology that are behind deep fakes, generative adversarial networks that get used to combine people's photos to make them look or look like they're saying and doing things they never said or did, are quite are, are quite sophisticated and they're becoming more accessible to the public but propagandists are pragmatists they will use the simplest tools that they can use the cheapest tools that they can use to get the job done oftentimes in india china and other places including the united states that means using people using people to manipulate folks or using cheap fake videos videos that are basically uh edited or sped up or slowed down using uh, uh imovie um and uh, so for instance, Nancy Pelosi, there was a video of Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House that was slowed down to make it look as if she was drunk. That was not a deep fake video, but people are very concerned about deep fakes, rightfully so because the technology is sophisticated and could have implications. But we have to come up with some way of educating people about not just what's possible, but also what's currently happening. And these are long, medium to long-term solutions. They, re they require innovation in the education space that we're just not seeing, at least in the United States, I don't know about India, that I think would require uh, the introduction of more critical thinking courses at an early age in, in, uh, in secondary school, for instance, that we don't see in the United States. A lot of college students in the United States don't really get clear critical thinking uh, education until they get to college. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah. I think that's, that's yeah that's right. So so truly application-based education is is required. So uh, thank you for your uh, response, uh, Dr. Woolley. There is uh, closely related to the question on uh, content regulation is by Miss um, Amy Rux. Sorry if I am mispronouncing your uh, name. Uh, she uh, her concern is that uh, in her work she sees uh, is that uh, minorities online, specifically indigenous groups who report trolling, end up becoming victims of social media content regulation when they attempt to defend their community, which is really true. Uh, how can we create policies that protect these groups and empower their ability to partner with social media platforms in order that they can team up with content moderators to identify abusive content online? This is a, a fantastic and really important question. And I've absolutely seen the same thing in my own work. Um, and it's a big problem. It's a problem of false positives. It's a problem of misidentification of the people who are on the receiving end versus the versus the, the offensive end. Um, and so uh, I think that there, there's a variety of mechanisms that we can we can think about. The to, to help these groups work with social media platforms or policymakers or civil society groups to empower them so that they don't fall prey to content moderation, to, to getting kicked off of the platform just because they're trying to defend their communities. Um, I've seen some attempts, uh, cursory attempts, I should say, by the social media platforms to reach out to civil society and movement-based organizations in the United States, groups like Color of Change and others, uh, in order to work with them to figure out how to address exactly these kinds of problems, but also how to protect marginalized communities, whether it's indigenous groups or others. They're very, again, rudimentary and they're based, these are based in the United States. We have to see this scaled. And right now we're not seeing it scaled. Mostly the problems are being addressed in the United States first, and then they are going around the world. And I worry that, you know, we can't wait for 10 years to, for these things to, to get to Myanmar. We can't wait for 10 years for these things to get to um, much of Eastern Europe. Otherwise, you know, we'll see a seriously detrimental effects. 
And so we can't only rely upon the social media platforms to do that kind of work. We need civil society groups and, and other infrastructural groups to support these kinds, this kind of work, not just to connect groups with social media platforms so that there's a conversation, but also to connect groups with policymakers and to make it clear that groups are being detrimentally affected and that they are being kicked off of platforms or uh, you know, also trolled in response to their attempts to protect their community. And uh, with that, we need to see the creation of some policies that work to protect uh, it, particularly indigenous groups, particularly other kinds of protected groups that receive undue types of, of, of backlash because of their attempt to protect their community from, from undue influence. Right. Thank you, Dr. Wooley. Um, I know it's uh, beyond time and very closely related to this previous response is a question that was the first question rather, and I would request you to kindly take it. Um, uh, given uh, giving an example of social maneuvering in India, the Muslim population in India has been targeted during the spread of the first wave of pandemic, that they, are, they have been responsible for the spread where videos of vegetable sellers were portrayed as selling infected vegetables, messages containing hatred for um, Muslims being circulated, which made people believe that coronavirus is being spread by this particular community. So when put one particular Muslim gathering was targeted, although many other Hindu gatherings and other religious gatherings were also uh, held, but these were not reported in this similar manner. So media played an important role in repeatedly highlighting these mistrends. So this minority faced a dual pandemic. What do you suggest as a responsible citizen to do to stop such hatred through uh, social media? So you've partly answered it, but yes, I think this is an important uh, point that is being brought about. It's a difficult thing for the average citizen to do much to respond to this because, because of you know the, the scale at which this is happening. What I would say is that we need to focus our attention upon working with media organizations to make sure that they do not repeat these untruths. Um, one of the things that we focus on at Center for Media Engagement, unsurprisingly given our name, is working with these organizations to make sure that they have a better verification and vetting process for the kinds of information that they reproduce. Remember I talked about network propaganda and the ways in which oftentimes what we see is the disinformation and, and misinformation and propaganda that appears online then being repeated by media organizations who are struggling to find stories or who are doing lazy journalism, reporting on trends or upon what they see on Twitter or on WhatsApp. And this is not enough. That's not okay. Uh, we have to work with these organizations to make sure that they have better understandings of what content is worthy of repeating versus not. Um, and when they fail in those regards, uh, uh, they must be held accountable. I, I mean, we, we, have, we have laws and policies that are built to do this. I'm all for free press, I'm all for free speech, but I think it is a terrible thing when we see journalists and, and the media re-reporting on rumors that uh, result in targeting of a minority community in, in a particular place. And we see the same thing happening in the United States oftentimes. We see it happening in England. We see it happening in Brazil. Uh, and so there's got to be more work. First Draft is leading the way to do this kind of this kind of work. We also have groups like the Pointer Institute in the United States, but the Center for Media Engagement is also attempting to scale our efforts to do this kind of work because really it's it, it boils down to irresponsible reporting and and then uh yeah i would, I would absolutely, say that that's my absolutely 
Right, absolutely. It is much needed. So did you have a chance to study intent in India? I mean, there is a question also. Yes. And if yes, are there any striking differences or uh, what were your major findings? Uh, um, the striking difference to me is that in party, whether it's it's BJP or other parties in India, that there is a in-house uh, kind of networked um, effort to build quite sophisticated propaganda arms of given parties, that they have scaled this uh, to, to create the IT warriors that I mentioned earlier, but also these, these social media groups that are on a regional level. Um, oftentimes the content comes from the top down. So the party or the party leader will, will uh, or the party leader's proxies will create the content uh, and spread it to people across multiple regions in India. Um, or multiple cities, and then there will be a smaller scale effort to do the kind of relational organizing that I'm discussing in a very sophisticated manner. India's, is, uh, India's propaganda apparatus on WhatsApp, it looks unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, I haven't been able to go in person, but we've done a number of different interviews with people that produce this stuff. And as Dr. Mehta said, they're very proud of their work because they view themselves doing the important work of the parties that they support. And they've showed us, you know, um, their their apparatuses. They have racked cell phones, so some of them will have fifty thousand phone smartphones connected to WhatsApp that are built basically to spread messaging in particular WhatsApp groups uh, with particular intentions. It could be attacking a, their opposition party. A lot of times, it could be extolling the massive virtues of their own party or their own leaders. And so, India has a lot of work to do to 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 figure out how to do build more protections into WhatsApp and other other uh, other arenas. Um, yes, what it's true that WhatsApp shares metadata uh, in a way that maybe Signal or other other organizations don't. Perhaps the way of combating this lies in that metadata. It also lies in some some kind of serious regulation because right now it, what we see happening in India is is very, very unfettered. Right, and the objective is to is for either ridiculing or for um, creating, you know, or frightening the other person. So yeah. this is yeah. proudly proclaimed. And yes, uh, thank you so much. With this, uh, I would like to call it a day. And uh, unless uh, you'd like to make some final points, okay, great. So thank you, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Samuel Woolley. It has been a delight to. Um, yes, uh, there is. Uh, um, a comment for your enriching points. That was what I was wanting to say for your enriching points and comprehensive presentation. And uh, all your points and suggestions are very well articulated. I totally second that. And thank you for being so generous with your time early in the morning and for brilliantly addressing all the questions. Uh, it was really wonderful being a witness to your wonderful presentation and the work that you are doing and uh, also in conversation with you. It was a real delight. And I hope that we can continue this engagement further. And uh, I really wish you all a very good day. And thank you for the audience for the question. Even on uh, Facebook Live, we are seeing a lot of participation. And, um, and on behalf of the Center for ICT for Development at IMPRI, I would like to formally propose the vote of thanks. Thank you so much. And I wish you a good day. Thank you very bye -bye. much. And thank you, everyone at IMPRI. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you so much, Dr. Samuel. Yes. Thank Have you. Bye-bye. Nice